0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is our little weather get-together for Wednesday, March 28, 2018. This is show number 225, and tonight we have uh, Todd Lindley on with us. He is the Science and Operations Officer at the National Weather Service in Norman, Oklahoma. We're going to be talking about forecasting wildfires, and uh, since wildfires have really kind of been in the story over the past couple of weeks, Todd's also going to talk about what they've uh, experienced there in uh, the Oklahoma and in North Texas area um, as they've uh, been battling this drought and some wildfires out there. So we're happy to have Todd back with us. Uh, if you were with us back in January, we we had Todd on and we lost internet connection. So uh, thankfully we've got Todd back on with us tonight um, as we talk about forecasting wildfires. So uh, this is a live broadcast tonight. If you are watching uh, us on many of our different platforms, maybe it's uh, Facebook Live or Periscope or through our uh, Google page or our uh, YouTube, uh, you can interact with us one of many different ways. You can leave us a comment on each of those threads, or even uh, the best way probably is to tweet us, at Carolina WX Group. And we'll be monitoring that throughout the show. And if any questions come in, uh, we'll be sure to uh, direct them towards Todd. And if you're listening on the uh, podcast, uh, maybe a couple of days from now or a couple of months from now, we'll let Todd share um, his information towards the end of the show and how you can uh, learn more about fire, uh, wildfires, especially out in the uh, Oklahoma area. And this is the national weather podcast month. We are wrapping it up. It's hard to believe that March is already over with. So uh, if you're listening or, or watching from uh, any of our friends uh, who are doing weather podcasts and we appreciate it, we're here every Wednesday night about eight fifteen Eastern time to I uh, talk about all things weather. So with that, we'll uh, bring in some of our panelists this afternoon, kind of a short, uh, short shift here on the show. I know Ricky's out with training. Uh, Jordan's out. Eric's out. Peter's out uh, with, with their families uh, during uh, the, the holiday season here with Easter approaching. So uh, you're stuck with Shay, Ashley, Jared, and myself. So I think we're a pretty good group. So uh, with that, let's bring in Ashley. She's probably been the busiest over the past couple of days, Ashley, Uh, How's things in uh, the great state of Texas tonight?
1: Things are going great. I'm running on fumes because we had quite the setup for active weather down here in central Texas. We had a pretty deep trough come through, and we knew about it probably about five days out, so I've been monitoring for the forecast. We were looking at severe weather for the area, um, especially in the late evening to overnight overnight. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your side of the story, we had a cold pool come in late last night that kind of cut off our chances to get any of that severe storms going on. So that kind of ended up being more of a southern Texas threat, but we still had a ton of training rain. So we were able to pick up anywhere from three to six inches in less than 12 hours, basically over the I-35 corridor. And we had some flash flood warnings go out. Uh, We had some places pick that that six inches up and, and get pretty flooded out. So I have been up since 2 a.m. monitoring all of that. So I'm kind of tired, but it was a good time to see something other than sun.
0: <laughs> I know you're ready to get some rest. So uh, we appreciate you uh, being able to join us tonight, Ashley. Let's go down to uh, the Charleston area. I'll bring in Shea Gibson. Shay house things down there uh, along the uh, South Carolina coast.
2: Doing pretty good, Scotty. I and mean, we're, we're now just getting into some warm weather for a couple of days. We're going to have a little cool down over the weekend. And then we warm back up again next week. So we're going to be watching to see the the tug and the push and pull of cool air masses and warm air masses over the next few weeks uh, as we transition more into the stronger warm season here. Uh, I'll go ahead and share a screen real quick just to give you an idea of what is going on with our sea surface temperatures. Let me make, Let me know when you can see this.
0: We got you, Shane.
2: Okay, good deal. Uh, So the Gulf of Mexico waters, uh, somewhere about anywhere from low to mid 70s, uh, maybe a little bit higher as you get down further south over the loop current. But then when you get up north, it's a little bit cooler. You get over here to the southeast coast, the cooler shelf waters are still pretty chilly in the upper 50s. And so that showed along our coastline today, we had about 60 degrees along our beaches, uh, just because of the onshore flow from the sea breeze, which ended up being pretty strong just inside the harbor uh, when we go to Fort Sumter. Uh, the winds were actually up into the mid to upper 20s and knots. So that means it was pushing about 30, 31 miles an hour there. But just over here on the beaches, it was only about 13, 14 miles per hour. The temperatures ranged from 60 degrees at the beach to 70 degrees just inside the harbor mouth. And then as you went inland to the airport, we actually had temperatures up near 79 degrees. Uh, so just the, the sharp contrast in temperatures, 10, 10, 10, layered from the land sea interface to just inside the harbor, the coastal breaks, and then all the way to inland. Uh, definitely made for a very interesting forecast. So, uh, that's this is that time of the year, you know, when, when things are really, really, really tricky until the sea surface temperatures warm up, then we see the severe weather increase. Uh, we had some severe threat uh, several days back, and uh, we fared pretty well along the immediate coast. But just inland, we had a tornado. I think we had a tornado signature, Jared, um, or some kind of rotation uh, radar indicated. Uh, tornado and then um some golf ball size hail so we're starting to see some severe weather here in the southeast as well just not as pronounced along our immediate coastline where the land sea interface is uh but other than that we are um we're starting to transition a little bit out of the, the heavier pollen thank gosh because that was uh that was brutal it started earlier this year and it came out with a bang and now it's starting to slowly fade out and i think other areas that um are just now starting to see it but we're we're transitioning out so we're, we're good to go here scott Back
0: to you. Yeah, I think that pollen's found its way up here to uh, the Piedmont foothills of North Carolina, so thank you for that report, Shay. I will say Jared's uh, doing uh, some, got some tech issues right now. Uh, James Broughton normally uh, on with us every night. He kind of does the uh, the behind-the-scenes tech stuff with our streams, and well, James is on Baby Watch. Uh, He's not going to be with us uh, tonight, and probably for not the next few uh, weeks, as he and his wife are expecting their first child, so Uh, We want to give our best to James and Chelsea and hope that uh, everything goes out good. So, uh, Jared is behind the uh, scenes running our our tech side tonight. So, uh, he just sent us a message. He can't talk about the Charleston weather right now because he's working on something. So, we'll skip Jared tonight. I will say here in the Carolinas, if you live in North Carolina, you know we've had all types of season this week. Uh, We topped out in the 70s today, but about three, four days ago, um, a good portion of the state probably – Three-fourths of the state was under somewhat snow cover uh, between a couple of inches in the uh, Piedmont to over a foot uh, in the mountain location. So it's been a very uh, diverse week weather-wise here in the Carolinas. But thankfully, uh, all the snow has melted away, and it looks like we're going to be close to 80 tomorrow. And it looks like it's actually going to be a good Easter week as uh, we stay in the upper 60s and low 70s. So hopefully all of that wintry stuff is is done for the, the rest of the year because I am tired of it. I know uh, Shay, you're even though you guys haven't got snow. I know you're tired of forecasting all the the cold temperatures and the wedge and stuff. So it, it's time for yeah. it to go away.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, April is one of our windiest months of the year, so we do expect the northeast wedges to continue. But the cat events, the cold air damming that we had the last couple of days, um, you know, it's like, gosh, you know, we got down near freezing just a few days ago. Um, one thing I do want to mention is that the National Weather Service Charleston did start. Uh, and not also Jacksonville all the way up and down the coast started their high uh, rip current forecasting uh, for on March 15th. So keep that in mind. If you're going to the beaches, you're getting out in that spring weather. You want to go to the beach, there's people swimming today. There is a high risk for rip currents going on right now through this evening. There may be another one issued tomorrow. I'm not really sure. They'll make that decision tonight. Uh, they may already have while we're live right now. But either way, keep uh, keep up with the latest from the National Weather Service as far as rip currents, because we do have conflicting swell with winds. And that creates a lot of turbulence in the waters, especially on the beaches near some of those spits where the uh, currents pull thing, pull people out to sea. So be very careful if you're on the water. Um, be mindful of the water temperatures, hypothermia. Be mindful of what the air temperatures may be. Prepare for any you know cooler climates still along the coastline. And um, that, that'll do it for, for us in the southeast along the immediate coast, Scotty.
0: All right, sounds good. Well, let's bring in our guest tonight, Todd Lindley, the science and operations officer at the National Weather Service in Norman, Oklahoma. Todd, thanks uh, for joining us again. How's things out in the uh, the good old state of Oklahoma?
3: Well, Scotty, thanks. for First of all, thanks for having me back after uh, the debacle that we had with the Internet uh, <laughs> outage back in January. It's a pleasure to be back with you guys, and uh, hopefully we can talk a little bit more about fire tonight. and uh, and have that uninterrupted by technical difficulties. So no pressure there, Jared. But uh, uh, first of all, out in Oklahoma, it's a little cool and, and wet right now. I'll show my screen real quick and uh, show you some of the uh, rainfall totals from the Oklahoma Mesonet over oh, the last uh, five days or so. Most of this started, uh, I guess, probably Sunday evening, and, and it's been raining uh, the last 48 to 72 hours or so off and on. But uh, good portion of South Central and Eastern Oklahoma really got a good drink of water uh, the last couple of days. As you can see there, rainfall totals ranging from about an inch and a half, just along and Southeast of the Interstate 44 corridor to locally near four inches in Northeast Oklahoma near the Tulsa area. And of course, this is tremendously good news because Oklahoma has been pretty drought stricken. Uh, This plot here from the Oklahoma Mesonet actually shows number of consecutive days with less than a quarter of an inch. And that's an amazing 172 days up in Northwest Oklahoma, places like Woodward, Arnett and Buffalo, way out in the Oklahoma panhandle near Kenton, they've gone 180 days without a quarter of an inch of rain. So we continue with D4 uh, exceptional drought out in Northwest Oklahoma and portions of the Texas panhandle. And that's where most of the fire activity has been occurring. so far this spring
0: yeah Todd before I guess we before we get into your presentation or else we can do it during your presentation uh, talk to us about how active it has been out there uh, in in your area especially western Oklahoma towards the uh, Amarillo area
3: we've had uh, gosh starting back in January uh, we started seeing some fire events here on the southern plains Most of them uh, have been relatively mild compared to fire events we've seen back in uh, 2016 and 2017. You know, we have not had uh, mega fires out here on the plains so far this year, Uh, but uh, there have been some events. I believe the largest fire we've had on the Southern Plains so far this season has been about 15,000 acres. It was called the County Line Fire, and it was just to the northwest of Amarillo. Another one actually... uh, Uh, northeast New Mexico that uh, actually burned in parts of three states, far southeast Colorado, uh, uh, northeast New Mexico, and the far western uh, Oklahoma panhandle called the State Line Fire. That one burned about 26,000 acres or so. But uh, with the rainfall over central and eastern Oklahoma, you know, here's to hoping that that we've seen the worst and maybe conditions will start to to improve from here. So Todd, I got a question for you. This kind of
2: Drought, what do you think is causing it, and do you, and what do you think may break that? Do you think it's just a, a in between seasons? I mean, that's a long period of time for that little trace
3: of rain. Yeah, you bet. Uh, you know, Shay, when we're in a La Nina type of regime in the eastern uh, Pacific Ocean, that's really a strong driver for drought on the southern Great Plains. And some of the studies that we've done on wildland fire, for instance, in the southern Plains, indicate that over the course of a decade about a staggering 98 percent of all the acreage burned on the southern great plains will occur during la niña so that's a tremendous uh, correlation between la niña drought and fire here on the southern plains so the latest indications are that la niña is starting to subside and uh, hopefully things will, will start to improve as we go through the weeks and the month ahead but we are technically in the peak of the fire season here on the Plains. Of course, the the very beneficial wetting rains we picked up in recent days uh, are are just vitally important to mitigating that risk in central and eastern Oklahoma.
0: Sounds good, Todd. Well, we can uh, go into your presentation and uh uh we can go through that and and definitely we'll we'll ask any questions as as you go through it Uh, one thing i know that you're going to talk about that a lot of our our followers and listeners have been really excited about is the go 16 data so uh, i'm sure that we'll be able to touch on that as well
3: you bet well hopefully you're seeing my my presentation now my slides and uh, just talk a little bit about predicting uh wildfires in the southern great plains and you know really the the southern great plains most people think of wildfires and what do you think you know you think the western united states you think uh, you know california and in the Intermountain west uh this is a a chart i believe this is showing wildfire activity from roughly i believe the last 15 years or so and what you'll see you know is most of the fire activity is from the rocky mountains westward to the to the pacific coast there Uh, But if you look in the southern Great Plains, you do see this kind of localized hotbed of fire activity, western Texas, uh, encompassing mainly the western two-thirds of Oklahoma or so. And those fires that you see there that are are yellow with the red outlines, those are actually megafires. Those are fires greater than 100,000 acres. And we're seeing a global increase in uh, megafires, you know, across the entire globe in the last uh, 10 to 20 years or so, but that's not just a, a Western US problem. That's also a problem here on the Southern Great Plains. And there are a number of kind of ecological reasons for that uh, one changing land uses usage. Uh, we have a general reduction in the acreage of, of agricultural land now compared to 50 years ago uh, and more lands going into conservation type programs with native and, and imported grass species out there and also you know general fire suppression over the last 100, 125 years or so as a settlement occurred on the southern great plains we started suppressing uh, wildland fire and that's allowed invasive woody species to to move in over the plains mesquite, eastern red cedar, and, and juniper so we're not just talking about grasslands now we're talking about increasing you know shrubby woody vegetation which just increases a fire's intensity and decreases the ability for, for uh, firefighters to, to suppress that fire. So not only that, but also increasing population across the southern plains. Uh, you know, in Texas, for instance, I believe the last time we had a multi-decadal drought, like what we've experienced from the late 1990s into the, to about 2010 or so, uh, the population of Texas was more like 7 to 9 million, and now it's about 27 million. So increased increase population means increased opportunity for fire start but also increased infrastructure with utility lines and uh, oil and gas industries big out here and that's a, a, a frequent uh, ignition source if you will for wildland fires on the southern plains. So, so fire is very much a southern plains problem just as it is the western U.S. And as I mentioned here in Oklahoma we're pretty much in the peak of our season now. Uh, you know we had very beneficial wetting rains in the last few days so hopefully that will help to to mitigate the threat and and uh, exhaust or kind of speed up the green up process as we go into spring here but in general our fire season in oklahoma does peak in the month of of march that's but, a
2: that's an interesting yeah. graph because i it's almost like you 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 could correlate a lot of this with severe weather outbreaks and lightning strikes but um is march your peak season for severe weather because it looks like um right now there's not a whole lot there
3: yeah no absolutely and, and that's a great point because i do want to point out that uh most significant wildfires in the southern plains are not associated with lightning at all uh, they occur in the in the dormant season under very dry downslope wind conditions and uh usually when we have thunderstorms it's moist enough around here that we have you know beneficial rain wetting rains associated with them so dry lightning outbreaks like you see in the west are are very unusual here not every fire season though you know brings uh brings significant fire in fact if you look at like a 10 to 12 year period you only see significant fire on the plains about uh every uh, about one third of the years so you know the fact that we've had pretty significant fire activity now uh, both in 16 17 and it's still a little debatable just how significant the the 18 fire season will turn out to be uh but to have three consecutive years of pretty significant fire activity would be very unusual so uh you know just because the grass is dormant and it's dry uh, you know the planes do not spontaneously combust or anything like that but uh, to speak to your point shay about just how analogous these systems are or the fire events are on the plains to severe convection uh, this, this graphic pretty much illustrates exactly that. In fact, most of the fire outbreaks that we see on the southern Great Plains uh, are caused by pretty much the same systems that, that spawn severe storms. You know, as meteorologists, though, we're always looking on the, to the eastern east side of the dry line in the warm, moist sector, and, of course, you know, for good reason, we're all interested in severe convection and, and uh, tornadoes. If you look out to the west of the dry line in this particular case, you see what looks like big convective billowing clouds out there. And in fact, they look something like this, but that's not actually a wedge-shaped tornado. That's the uh, Swenson fire that burned about about a quarter of a million acres east of Lubbock in uh, April of of 2011. So uh, a very interesting process that goes on to the west of the dry line, too, with these very dynamic springtime storm systems that move across the southern plains these mid-latitude cyclones to the east they bring severe storms and and tornadoes and to the west they can bring uh, very damaging wildfires so we've been able to apply very analogous methods to those that you know were were, uh, pioneered in the 1950s to first study tornadoes and severe thunderstorms to studying wildfires and learning how to forecast wildfires you know and one thing I always like to point out is with tornadoes, about eighty percent of them are, are weak. Another eighteen percent or so are strong and may do this type of damage that you see to this this structure: remove your your roof, you know, blow out windows, knock down trees. Uh, but very few, less than two percent, are violent. You know, EF four, EF five tornadoes that just level your home. But of course, fire is is actually a violent form of decomposition. In fact, uh, one of the the uh, most noteworthy fire historians in the country, Dr. Stephen Pine, defined a fire as a violent form of decomposition. So fire impacts a much larger geographical area as far as footprint and the damage and also the intensity of the damage is almost always violent. And so Todd, yes, go ahead. And,
0: and Todd, I was gonna say for, for our followers and listeners tonight, um, the Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge fire um, was a violent fire. If you uh, Recall back some of the reports out of that they compared the the damage in in the mountains of, of there of East Tennessee, you know, the, comparable of what you may see out in the Midwest with tornadoes. So uh, those wildfires, like you said, Todd, can can cause a lot of devastation.
3: You bet. And that's a that's a, a, a good example to illustrate the point. But, yes, that was a disastrous event as well. Uh, So all the pictures I've shown here are all associated with this particular day, April 14th of 2011. And this was just kind of a classic fire outbreak on the Southern Great Plains. And and as you can see, the CWA where I'm from, uh, WFO Norman, you can see our CWA literally split right down the middle near the Interstate 35 corridor with the severe storms and tornadoes occurring to the east and extreme fire conditions in the west. And that's something that we see pretty frequently Uh, But I just love this quote from Dr. Pine at the top that fires are atmospheric events as much as dust devils or hurricanes, which also organize heat release from the surface. So, you know, as meteorologists, many times we we like to think about, you know, well, I can tell you what the relative humidity and the wind is, but it's up to the forestry service to determine the impact on the fuels. But really, this is all it's all meteorological. So and I can make several points to that throughout the throughout the night, but it all comes back to meteorology and fire really is an atmospheric event.
1: Yeah, and if I could just make a quick comment on that, Uh, I spent a huge time in Lubbock, and I will tell you living in Lubbock, some of the worst wildfire days that we had or dust days or windy days were outbreak days. So the big outbreaks, like you were saying, in Oklahoma or uh, in the Southeast, we were getting fire weather. So I completely agree with that graphic. It's picture perfect for what goes on out there. Yeah,
3: absolutely, Ashley. This is just a little bit of information about these outbreak fire outbreaks that occur on the plains. Uh, Since about 2005, uh, we've documented 25 of these widespread fire outbreaks, uh, what we call Southern Great Plains wildfire outbreaks or firestorms. And cumulatively, those 25 events have burned about 5.8 million acres. They've destroyed 2,700 structures uh killed 34 people and injured 220, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, just the the scale of fire and the violent nature of the fire that you see during these type of events, 88% of them result in human casualties. So uh, very, very uh, dangerous fire events that we see here on the Southern Great Plains. Uh, and you can see this this chart kind of showing the cumulative Plains fire outbreaks. Interestingly enough, prior to about 2005, if you look at the state forestry agency fire records, you don't see fire on, the, on this scale in the Southern Great Plains. You don't see any individual events that, that have fire on the scale of the events that we've seen post uh, 2005. So it's almost like we've met a threshold there with land usage, population and seasonal variation or climate changes that, that have kind of uh, facilitated this type of fire on the plains now Todd I got a question like th-
2: these fires seem to spread very quickly is there what is the main driving mechanism I hear of chinook winds in, in the plains a lot and and where you're talking about in these areas is this a, a downslope sort of adiabatic heating process that where the winds are really cranking through there and, and spreading these fires very very fast or what is the the main driving mechanism Yes, Shay. Uh,
3: usually, this is the, the picture-perfect textbook fire scenario on the Southern Plains here. This is what we call the composite map for a Southern Great Plains wildfire outbreak. And you can see it, it features, like we saw in the visible satellite image, the ejection of a strong shortwave trough or mid-latitude cyclone ejecting over western Kansas. And to the south of that, you see these very deep, very intense wind fields. Uh, They're at 500 millibars or about 18,000 feet above ground level. Uh, that 70 knot wind max coming across West Texas. Uh, I can tell you from experience, I think that that's showing 70 knots because of the spatial uh, averaging that we did to get the composite map. Usually these individual events, if you look at them, they range anywhere from some 60 knots. But usually the most dangerous events have a mid-level speed max of about 100 to 120 knots or so. Uh, and of course, that translates down to the surface. You get sustained winds of 30 to 40 miles an hour, usually sometimes in excess of 40 with uh, gusts around 60 to 65 miles an hour, not uncommon in these type of events. So you actually see a rate of spread for fire. A lot of people think that the fire literally spreads at the rate of the, of the wind, but that's not true. The fire propagates, you know, through the vegetation. Uh, the One of the, the, I guess I should say the the fastest uh confirmed rate of spread that we have observed on the southern great plains is about six and a half miles an hour which is still pretty significant you're covering the length of a football field in well less than a minute uh, but if you you know th- with the goes 16 imagery and some of the fire events that we saw last year with it when it was experimental seem to suggest that we might have had some one hour periods in there we were seeing rates of spread in excess of 10 miles an hour and we'll, we'll show some of that imagery but just to make one more point about uh, about one of these fire uh, outbreak uh, bearing weather systems they're very anomalously warm and if you look at the dates all of these are in you know wait, late winter to early spring but yet you see on average the 80 degree uh, isotherm extending all the way into into central Oklahoma so uh very unusually warm very Uh, unusually intense wind fields and very very dry uh, back in in to the west of the dry line south of the cold front. Now that composite picture kind of shows us the synoptic scale that's favorable for these type of fire outbreaks so when we start to recognize that big picture weather pattern coming across and of course those are pretty predictable features you know a big mid-latitude cyclone like that ejecting over the plains. many times we can see them coming numerical weather prediction of five, six, seven days out. Uh, but when we start to see that, it doesn't really tell us exactly what portion of the plains is at greatest risk, whether it be Eastern New Mexico or Eastern Oklahoma. So what we start to focus in on are these, are these temperature anomalies. So what we found time and time again is that the fire activity tends to congregate where temperatures are plus five, plus 10, plus 15 degrees above normal. And more specifically, they tend to, you really get these conflagrations where you have this low level thermal ridge, either at the surface or around 850 millibars being overspread aloft by intense mid-level speed max at at 500 millibars. So in this case from April 9 of 2009, that's a day we burned about a quarter of a million acres across Oklahoma, central Oklahoma into Northwest Texas on this particular day you can see all the fires are aligned along the low level thermal ridge but specifically where the 75 knot 500 millibar speed max is intersecting that low level thermal ridge so we've been able to use that uh, going forward as a strong predictive signal for forecasting specific areas uh, up to three days in advance where there's a heightened risk of very damaging wildfire and just like you were asking shay about you know, what, what is the process that occurs there? And you mentioned Chinook winds. And it, it's not exactly the same as a Chinook wind, but it's very similar. So this is a, an instance of the Anderson Creek fire. You can see the fire in the dry wedge there. Uh, the clouds, if you can follow my cursor there, these clouds up here, that's actually associated with the blizzard on the front range of Colorado. This linear cloud feature here that is actually the cold front sweeping south through the Texas Panhandle. This right here is the Anderson Creek uh, fire in March of 2016, which burned about the uh, 360,000 acres. And it, at the time was the largest wildland fire in Kansas and Oklahoma state history. Back here to the Southwest, you can actually see a couple of other damaging fires in the Texas Panhandle just south of the cold front. But this area right here is what I'm referring to as the kind of the, the warm, dry sector of this particular cyclone. So if we take a, a cross section across this storm system from the blizzard uh, in the front range of the Rocky Mountains east through this low-level thermal ridge where the fires are occurring, what we see if we look at the, the potential lines of potential temperature, the isentropes, they're generally slanting down. And then they get into the low-level thermal ridge, and they fold right into the surface. So, if you know, if generally the air or the winds will actually flow along these isentropes. It's similar to the way we get, you know, isentropic upglide or, or ascent with a warm front, except it's the exact opposite. Here we're channeling the mid-level flow aloft right into the surface where the temperatures happen to be, you know, the warmest. Relative humidity is the driest, and the lapse rates are dry adiabatic through a very deep portion of the lower parts of the atmosphere, just allowing that momentum to, to transfer down to the surface. Now, Todd, do you guys have
2: uh, vertical profiling active over in your neck of the woods, or do you just go by your soundings?
3: Well, we, we a number of things we use soundings, of course. Uh, and and pretty high resolution modeling of this we can usually see this process we can actually see the the coupling of the mid-level kinematics with the low level thermodynamics uh, play out in high resolution models like the her Uh, you can watch it uh, play out you can see the coupling and the decoupling so we can actually get the fire effective time window for a system like this down to you know a number of hours uh, when that coupling is occurring One part of the equation that we haven't really discussed yet are the fuels. We talked a lot about the weather, but I've got some other great uh, quotes from, from Dr. Stephen Pine in here. Fire is a climatic phenomena. Climate determines the potential for fuels and, and vegetation. You think about it. Why are the fuels there? You know, the fuels and the vegetation really are a biospheric reflection of climate and seasonal variation and weather. It's, it's the cumulative effect of weather and, and, seasonal variation over time that that create the fuels and shape the fuels so what we use here on the southern great plains we use a a value that's part of the national fire danger rating system called the energy release component and if if you're into severe convection you know about k convective available potential energy erc is really the fire equivalent of that it's telling us the potential energy available within the fuels for burning so we can look at this value and we know we have statistical studies that show that if the ERC values are near 60, very large fires greater than 5,000 acres are, are in the realm of possibility. But if we have, you know, ERC values only a 30 or so, we're really shy of the parameter space that results in these very large damaging fires. Not to say we won't have fire. You could have some lower end fires, uh, you know, upwards of a couple hundred acres, but you know, you're not going to see a, a, 5,000, much less a 10,000, 100,000 acre fire in that kind of environment. And this is just an example actually from Ashley's neck of the woods down in central Texas uh, of, the, of the energy release component back during the spring of uh, 2015 when we had very dramatic swings. Austin went from flooding rains in late May, the ERC was down to, to zero, you could not start a wildland fire if you tried, as you can see, large areas are underwater. But then through the course, what the ERC does for us is it models the vegetative response over time. So you see the drying out from the floods and then the buildup of of grasses and vegetation that resulted from that rainfall over the course of the summer. And then finally get to a point where the summer heat drying things out and you get to a very volatile fire regime by October. And we had a very large fire called the Hidden Pines Fire near Bastrop. And then lo and behold, within a week later, you have flooding rains come in again, and you can see that ERC value uh, respond and go back down near zero with no threat of wildland fire. So it's, it is a tool that we can use to see how the wildlands are responding over broad periods of time uh, to the moisture and to the weather.
1: So I had a quick question about that. So you said around 40 to 60 uh, ERG or ERC is what you would look at for wildfires, correct?
3: well these are raw values for a single location so take them with a grain of salt the best way to do this is to normalize it using percentile rankings but uh, in this particular study of this area of west texas you know you start to see the more significant fires once the erc gets upwards of 60.
1: yeah that was going to be my question so it's just for the panhandle that's not for central texas
3: those particular values would be you know and how they would relate to fire would be different if you looked at Central Texas. But what you want to do is look at the percentile ranking and see how anomalous those ERC values are. In general, this the 60th 60, sixty or I'm sorry 60, uh, 60 raw ERC value that you see here in the Texas Panhandle is near the 90th percentile in, in the Texas Panhandle. But in Central Texas, the 90th percentile may be more like 40.
1: Okay, thank you.
3: So, in general, fire, what we call critical fire weather, which is usually what meteorologists refer to as some combination of relative humidity and wind, it really is a moving target. You know, if the fuels are really volatile, uh, you, you may see significant fires occur, say if the relative humidity gets to around 5%, but the wind's only 15 miles an hour, but in less critical fuel environments, you may need much stronger winds or lower RH to get fire. So, But really, uh, you know, a 30 percent relative humidity with the sustained wind near 40 is the same as the five and 15 mile an hour that we just discussed to a fire. So it's really a moving target. And, you know, generally as the strength or the fuel moisture increases, a, a fire's resistance to control will also increase. So as the fuel moisture goes down and down and they get drier and drier, then, you know, you need less weather. Conversely, you know, if you have higher fuel moisture, uh, you're going to need much stronger weather uh, to to result in significant fire. And you can we can actually plot that out by combining a couple of parameters: the energy release component and another parameter called the red flag threat index, which is nothing more than like the it's the quartile ranking for combinations of relative humidity and wind. But you can see that that plot you actually get a a a pretty high correlation and a polynomial regression here uh, with the combination of those parameters. And that's basically, you know, you, we can start to, we can use that as a baseline to forecast the types of fires that we may see on any given day. Now, here's the exciting stuff with go 16 And uh, we were talking a little bit about that. The, the animation that you're seeing here is uh, from the firestorm that we had on March 6th of 2017 on the southern great plains affected portions of southwest kansas northwest oklahoma and the texas panhandle this was an amazing and historic event we had 1.2 million acres that burned uh, on this particular day across the southern great plains but what we're seeing is the go 16 imagery is really revolutionizing the way the national weather service does fire services Uh, one of the new things that we've implemented here at wfo norman is uh, when we start to see indications of a newly emerging wildfire in the go 16 imagery, we will send its geolocation and the proximity weather conditions for that fire to first responders and basically provide an initial detection uh, type of capability for the first responders. And the first year that we did this was in uh, uh, 2016 and 78% of those notifications uh, led to a a five to 15 minute advance notice over local 911 calls. So that's a dramatic uh, service. I can tell you the feedback from that, that we're getting is, is, will just blow your mind. Uh, Frequently getting comments from emergency managers and state and local officials, how, you know, this is saving lives and property across the Southern Great Plains. And that application that we developed here in Norman has been shared with about 30, 31 other forecast offices around the country now. I can't speak to, you know, which offices are using it and which ones are not, but uh, the capability to do that is spreading r- around the country. And this is just one more kind of testimonial of that service. This is kind of what the output looks like in the lower left. A couple of forecasters actually at WFO Norman, and a Texas a and Forest Service fire analyst that was deployed at WFO Norman at the time, both looking at this fire developing on the monitor here and looking downstream to see, you know, what structures may be threatened. And this is an amazing quote from a, a fire chief in West Texas with more than 30 years of experience saying that the NWS hotspot notification is one of the five greatest developments in his career right up there with the jaws of life. So that tells you uh, how... How beneficial that tool really is. And uh, a NOAA press release uh, from just last week saying wildfire season on the southern Great Plains is off to a strong start and that hot spots are detected earlier than ever thanks to NOAA GOES, uh, goes East, which is formerly known as GOES 16. This is just another uh, animation showing that uh, March 6, 2017 firestorm. Pretty remarkable. And this fire here was the Perryton fire became the third largest fire in in state history in Texas. And if you watch when the wind shift hits it uh, on the evening of the 6th, you see this head fire start to go towards the south right there down the Canadian River Valley. And that's where it appears, based on the GO-16 imagery, we might have had rates of spread of about uh, close to 10 miles an hour for a short period of time. As far as some of the fire activity we've had this year, uh, like I said, most of it has actually been on the high plains of West Texas and eastern New Mexico. Uh, we have had some, some fire activity in Oklahoma, but uh, this was an event from uh, March the 18th, and you can see a classic fire situation where you have a, a strong storm system crossing the, the Colorado Rockies, ejecting into western Kansas. And even though you don't see widespread fire activity in this case, like we saw in some of the examples I've shown, you do see one isolated large fire near Amarillo. And this is an image of that fire. And this is actually the hospital district on the northwest side of Amarillo. And the fire is moving in, threatening actually the medical areas of of, the complex in northwest side of Amarillo. So a few scary moments there. But if you actually look to the northeast and the northeast Texas Panhandle moving in the northwest Oklahoma, that's severe uh, thunderstorms, severe convection. And this is a tornado that occurred near Spearman in the northeast Texas Panhandle with that same system. So that tells you how dynamic these systems are. You have fires near Amarillo. And just even within the Texas Panhandle, you know, some uh, 90 miles away, you have tornadoes.
2: And Todd, question real quick, Um, looking at these pictures. We always hear that uh, fires create their own atmosphere or their own weather.
3: Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I can just a little bit. Uh, there was a, a, a research study done in Central Texas several years ago called Fire Flux. And what, they actually had some uh, prescribed fire that they moved through some specially built mesonet sites basically to measure, uh, to measure the effects of fire Uh, and you know, they found some very interesting things, uh, for one, the wind, what probably the most striking result that I've remembered, uh, the wind associated with the fire front can be three times the ambient wind speed. So very strong winds associated with it. Of course, it's very, very hot. These things burn on the Southern great Plains. It depends on the intensity of the fire and, you know, the condition of the fuels that it's burning in. But in general here on the Southern plains, they burn at about uh, 1300 degrees or so. So very warm uh, burning temperatures. And uh, another thing that's interesting, when we've had mesonet sites that had burn-throughs, what we frequently see is you see an evacuation of what little um, vegetation there was in the sur- on the surface or in the, in, the, in the vegetation. You can see that evacuate immediately in advance of the fire front with a, like a miniature little spike of relative humidity and dew point. Uh, immediately before the fire front passes so so you know they definitely they are very much dynamic atmospheric events uh, like i hope to show here you know they they're they're a result of a coupling of the atmosphere with the the biosphere with the vegetative uh, boundary layer at the surface does that kind of answer the question shay
2: yes actually absolutely i mean I'm i'm sure each different region has its own um you know the fires have their own sort of weather they create i mean like hood river oregon would be an example of of um where you might see some of that funneling effect or um you know dead valleys peaks and valleys and some of the other areas where where fires may occur uh where uh, you know california is another example we see the wildfires over there and, and it seems like every region is a little bit different from each other as far as h- how they go but uh, there's some impressive slides that you did there and uh i got to say, if, if uh, John Jensenius is to lightning like you are to wildfires. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Todd, I have, I have a question for you. Um, for Getting the word out, as you guys are in the Norman office for your forecasting, I know the, the Storm Prediction Center, which is your neighbors um, there at the National Weather Center, they issue uh, fire weather outlooks, uh, I think, a day one, day two, and then day through three through eight, I believe, is what it is. And then you guys also issue like um, red flag warnings and stuff like that. Can you kind of talk to our viewers about those different products and if one's issued for their area, maybe what that they may they uh, those advisories or whatever may be mean for them?
3: Sure. Yes. Well, you're correct. The Storm Prediction Center issues fire weather outlooks uh, for days three through eight, you know, day two. And of course, day one as well that basically just indicate whether the the weather will fire weather will be elevated, uh, critical, or extremely critical for a given area. And that's, that's a good, you know, indicator to folks that, you know, if they're interested in such things and they want to, to know, you know, just how critical the fire weather conditions are on any given day in the outlook period. At the WFO, at the National Weather Service offices, we issue uh, fire weather watches, Generally about, uh, you know, can be as as far out as three days in advance of a potential event. And those just indicate that conditions are becoming increasingly favorable for extreme fire behavior uh, or also new ignitions, new wildland fire ignitions. And then once we get within about 24 hours of an event, we will generally, you know, if, if the forecast remains on track, we'll upgrade to a red flag warning. And a red flag warning is kind of a unique beast in the National Weather Service. You know, everything else is tornado warning, winter storm warning, flash flood warning. And then we call this a red flag warning. And it has a unique history. It was basically a firefighter safety message is how it originated uh, out in the West, where many times in the in the fire season in the Western U.S., you have fire always on the ground out there. And it was a message used to communicate to to firefighters that you know, at this particular time and space, uh, the fire will likely behave in an extreme way and it's a safety message for you to, to take precautions. Uh, certainly here on the Southern Plains, now the, the red flag warning has morphed more into a public safety and uh, of course, a land management and fire management product as well. So uh, the National Weather Service is looking at that in the future, trying to determine you know, is there a need for public fire safety messages and and what what venue would we use to to communicate that uh so that that's an ongoing effort to maybe modernize the the fire weather program now sometimes when we get into these very active extreme fire situations we have what's called a fire warning and a fire warning is a warning that we can issue at the national weather service at the request of a local emergency manager that needs to communicate uh prompt a a mass communication of evacuation instructions. So say a wildfire is approaching a town or a community, the emergency manager can ask us to disseminate a fire warning with detailed uh, instructions for how folks should evacuate.
1: I have a question about that because I'm in emergency management. So how often is that utilized? Because I know we have our own uh, evacuation warning systems and our own ways to do all of that. Uh, How often do they rely on that?
3: It differs uh, depending on the season and the severity of the fires that we see in any any given year. I know that event that I showed you images of from Amarillo, I believe they issued two fire warnings during that event. I've also noticed that use of that product is not very consistent around the country. Some areas where they have, you know, I don't know if it's relationships with emergency managers or just cultural knowledge of, of that capability, uh, sometimes you see those issued in some parts of the country and in others you don't. It does seem that here in the Southern Plains, it seems to be used more more commonly.
0: And, and Todd, Ashley, I want to piggyback kind of Ashley's question. When you do have these events going on, what is the... What is the role of the National Weather Service? Are you? I know you guys do uh, decision support. Are, are you there communicating with them? Do you give them updates? W- what, what is the role for the Weather Service when, when we do have these big fires? Wow, that's
3: a really great question. So there, there are several parts to that. I would say historically, the role of the National Weather Service in fire has been strategic. Uh, our role has been to identify periods or days that are going to have extreme fire behavior due to weather combinations of weather and fuels and issue red flag warnings. And then those really prompted strategic preparations by fire and land management. And maybe they would uh, allocate resources to a certain area for a given period of time so that they're available to assist and help you know, mitigate public impacts. Uh, but now, especially with GO-16, our role is really transitioning from not just strategic role, but to a tactical role. So now you know, our red flag warnings and, and fire weather watches and outlooks can help strategically pre-locate resources to a, a area of heightened risk. But now we're actually starting to tactically assist in routing those pre-deployed resources to the fire early so that they can, can attack it early and heavy and you know, really have a mitigating impact on some of these, these violent fire events.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I was going to say uh, staging is really important. I know you're saying that NWS played a role in that previously, but we actually sent a crew down to Childress for two weeks, a couple weeks ago when they had the Amarillo fires, because we were seeing that. And they have the mutual aid program. That That's right. Tiffmas. Yep, yeah, yeah. So we sent two There's crews no down diff- there. And they were able to help that
3: too. I can say beyond our fire weather watches and red flag warnings, uh, the National Weather Service plays a big role in communicating with the state forestry agencies, certainly in Oklahoma and in Texas and helping to uh, target those TIFMIS deployments that you're talking about, Ashley. Uh, So we actually are are providing experimental, uh, significant wildland fire outlooks uh, that are probabilistic in nature and say may say that there is a 40 percent probability of significant wildland fires in the amarillo area you know on you know, three days from now or whatever and and some of that information is helping to guide some of the these strategic preparations that you're seeing from the state of texas
1: yeah and then i had one more question for you so as an emergency manager who is currently working for a fire department who has meteorology forecasting background and schooling and everything They want me to get really good at this because they're very (laughs) excited about having that kind of resource so what are some resources or any kind of thing i could tune into to enhance that because i will say uh, living in lubbock and being a college student who loves severe weather i really just paid attention to tornado forecasting (laughs) so i could probably use some work on my fire weather forecasting so what are some good resources for that
3: well, you're not alone. Uh, most meteorologists in the Southern Plains have always been uh, very heavily interested in severe convection and storms and tornadoes and, and the fire side of things. Uh, there was not a lot of work done on uh, Plains fire meteorology prior to the, the really the onset of these big events in about 2005, 6 and beyond. So, uh, uh, but since then, we've made tremendous strides and there there are a couple of uh, resources out there a couple of papers that uh, there's a small working group of subject matter experts in this area in the plains and we have authored a number of papers uh, one in the electronic journal severe storms meteorology on southern great plains wildfire outbreaks for instance so you you can look at that paper and kind of uh, get the basic understanding of, of identifying these outbreak type patterns we also have a relatively newer paper in the uh in the nwa journal of operational meteorology on the low level thermal ridge and how to use that to really focus in on an area of heightened risk and and physically what's going on with the low level thermal ridge it makes it such a bad player for fire
1: well perfect thanks for that i look forward to looking into that
3: todd i had a question for
2: you if you can hear me okay i sure can go ahead that's good news uh looks like yeah, it looks like it's not capturing me when I talk on the stream, so um I might have to have everybody uh, repeat what I'm saying oh man, it's been one of those nights it's been one of those days but uh but so uh, let's talk uh go sixteen again briefly and um and so with go sixteen you have an, a multitude of fire products you not only have um you know the firepower fire area fire temperature drive products from uh the level two stream, but you also have the fire temperature RGB. Um, I, what products are y'all finding that you're using most in operations?
3: Okay. Well, the one particular channel that's specifically made for fire really is channel seven, the 3.9 micron. It's a shortwave IR channel. And that is probably the default uh, tool that we're using with Go 16. I, there are, like you said, the, the fire temperature RGB, which is really cool. That's the example I was showing in the animation. Looks really really ominous when you see a, a, a good fire on there. Uh, a lot of the derived products like fire power, fire size, uh, those algorithms, from my understanding, are still being kind of tweaked and calibrated to go 16 because they were actually designed for legacy goes. Uh, so they're still they're still a work in progress. And from looking at fire activity in the West this past summer, uh, they, they still need some tweaking and they're being tweaked. Uh, one thing our forecasters have had a lot of success in in finding fire very early is looking at what's known as the fog difference channel, which is basically the 11 minus 3.9 micron difference. And with that particular channel, it seems to be very sensitive and you can see fires really early while they're still fairly small. In fact, uh, in, the, in the last year, on three separate occasions here at WFO Norman, we successfully helped dispatch crews to structure fires that were previously unreported.
2: Oh, that's awesome. You guys have any uh, luck with the nighttime microphysics too?
3: I have not looked at that in close detail for fire, so I'd have to withhold judgment on that one. Awesome. And I
2: have one more for you, Todd. Um, if, if I am... A viewer watching this show if i live in in that area and um there, there's a, a major wildfire going ongoing what's the best way that i can get plugged into what's going on you know a lot of folks they're on their phones they're not really watching tv necessarily um you know they're just kind of living out of their phones uh what it when you issue your 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 warnings or your your products, do they automatically go out to the phones? Or do, do people need to go into their phones and activate that? What's the process that people can, can know what's going on without being told through the news at the last minute or hear, see well, stuff in the air?
3: Yeah, I, I would say local media and listening to your local officials is still the best, best means of communication to get real-time fire information. Uh, during these fire events, both Texas A&M Forest Service and the Oklahoma Forestry Services are very active in social media, especially on Twitter and Facebook. You can get updates that way, but uh, definitely the, the local you know, broadcast media or media online via social media uh, is definitely the best way to get the most up, up-to-date information. And Of course, if, if it turns into an emergency type of event and your home or, or your community is being threatened, uh, just listen to, to the, the local uh, emergency management and law, law enforcement officials.
0: And Todd, my last question uh, for you is... Uh, we've got Go16 now going. What do you think the future is um, for forecasting these wildfires? Do you see anything else down the pipeline or anything you guys are kind of working on to, to, to get the forecast better and to, to kind of really hone in on this?
3: Well, there, it's an exciting time to be working on wildland fire, not just here in the Plains, but all across the country, really, because there are some exciting things. You've got the the, the, the new generation of go satellites, 16 and, and 17, which has now uh, been launched. So uh, the, that's really going to revolutionize the way we handle fire, no doubt. There are other things, too, from a from a broader picture forecast perspective. Uh some exciting things that are being done, uh, at the fire sciences lab in Missoula. Uh, gentleman up there, Matt Jolly, a scientist there that's been working on something called the wildland fire assessment system. It's a, a gridded kind of fire danger uh, system that uh, forecasters will be able to, to access and utilize to help uh, forecast areas of heightened risk as well. So there are some some innovative things occurring you know, in the wildland fire communities, specifically in areas of operational fire forecasting for, for the national weather service and beyond. Okay. I lied. I do have one more. Okay.
2: Just, you just, you just brought up a good point. Um, can you see these fires before they're actually reported and and can you be the ones to actually report to the
3: authorities what's going on at, at what time? in some cases we absolutely can and have been uh, on multiple occasions uh, like i said even even recently picking up on structure fires you know and that's pretty amazing when you're talking about an instrument that's 22,000 miles away and it's seeing a house burning in central oklahoma Uh, but we are in many cases catching uh, a a signature in the shortwave IR imagery before local 911 calls are received at, at a local jurisdiction
0: and Todd, speaking on that, I know we talked before this show, you guys uh, have partnered up with the Oklahoma Emergency Management. Uh, you guys are doing some cool things with, with those folks as well with, with, fire, with wildfires and with the go 16 data.
3: That's right. Uh, some of the folks there, uh, Zach Stanford and, and uh, Daniel Pilts, have been instrumental in helping us uh, with this uh, wildfire detection or what we call hotspot notification uh, system that we're using here and uh, it's you know direct feedback during periods of active fires here in Oklahoma and in Texas and and even now expanding into Kansas the direct feedback we're getting from the EMs is certainly along the lines of you know this is saving lives and saving
0: property very cool well I know uh, we we don't want to keep you all night I, I know we could continue talking about this but uh how can uh, our folks uh, get a hold of you or kind of see uh, do you have a Twitter account you want to push out or just the forecast office there? Uh, what social media accounts can, can they follow? Just you at
3: NWS Norman. And my email address is Todd.Lindley at Noah.gov.
0: All right, Todd. Well, we appreciate you being with us tonight. Um, I, I Thank you for that. And I'm glad our internet was able to, uh, to stay up throughout the show.
3: <laughs> Success.
0: <laughs> it is. And uh, good luck this spring season. Hopefully you guys aren't too busy there.
3: Well, thank you. We appreciate that. Thanks
0: you welcome, Todd. Well, we're going to skip tweets of the week tonight because I think Jared's technology side is kind of going crazy. So we'll get all the bugs fixed uh, with that. But we do want to appreciate uh, again extend our appreciation uh, to Todd tonight for joining us on the Carolina Weather Group. And that wraps up our portion of the National Weather Podcast Month. Here it's been another great um, another great month of uh, sharing it with all of our uh, weather podcast friends. I know tomorrow night. Uh the Weather Junkies will be featuring uh Peter and Eric from the Carolina Weather Group on their show uh Thursday night. I think it starts at eight o'clock. And uh just follow Weather Junkies on Twitter. Uh you'll be able to uh kind of pull up that show and listen to it. Eric and, and Peter will do as well uh as as um as we kind of finish out the the weather podcast month. And then next week uh we have John jensenius on. We're gonna be talking about lightning safety. We're gonna kind of be going into Um, Severe weather mode uh, here in the Carolinas and throughout the southeast as uh, springtime really kind of peaks up everything. So we're going to be talking about lightning safety uh, next week with John Jansinius, And then um, we don't have a show scheduled yet for the 11th of April. And then for the 18th, we have one of Jared. I know Jared's working on a guest as well kind of talking about the uh, some, some cool things that we're doing with Lightning and stuff on Go 16. So uh, that's what we're looking at for the next few weeks. But until then, we hope that uh, you will continue to uh, follow us and share the word about the Carolina Weather Group to your friends and family. And uh, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, or your uh, Google Play Store to our podcast and also subscribe to our YouTube page so you can get updates about when we go live. So for everyone here at the Carolina Weather Group, I'm Scotty Powell. hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you back here next Wednesday night at 8.15 with John Jensenitz.